Again. Good morning. Right, and it is it is a foreshadowing. I think I mentioned this, but it, uh, it's a the Haman's humiliation is foreshadowing his ultimate destruction. I mean, his that that he will you know ultimately be destroyed is being foreshadowed in that. Any other questions? Yes. Right, and there, I will go into that. There's a, there's a lot there. First of all, she's very skillfully replying to him by using those exact same words that he used, uh, but also by saying, this is my petition, save my life, and save the life of my people. I can't remember which order it's in, but she's also identifying herself specifically without even naming her people, saying we are, their destiny is my destiny and identifying herself in that, and that's the significance of it. Yes, Vicki. Yeah, and um, I can't remember exactly where that falls in the story, but we're going to talk a lot about what, the, what this is saying about God and about how he works through ordinary circumstance and how he is in control uh, and, and at work, even when, when we, we don't see that and it doesn't, doesn't appear that he is. That he, and even when we think we're in control, uh, ultimately he's, he's the one that's in control. I'm sure Xerxes thought he was in control of the entire universe, and he wasn't. Couldn't even control his own sleep, could he? So, which I can't either, but, you know. <laughs> one o'clock this morning, and like, you know, I really need to get to sleep because I've got my, my niece, nieces and nephews this week, the littlest one, two years old, almost three, wakes up at six in the morning. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think I'll be napping when she naps this afternoon, but. Okay, any other questions? Let's pray. Father God, um, we just are so grateful to you for, for your word, so grateful for what it teaches us, us about you and your character. Father, I just pray that you would be glorified today in um, what is said here and in, uh, through your word, which we know you are glorified through that. And um, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and redeemer. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to begin with a story today, uh, and as I think probably everyone in the room knows, the birth of each of our children is a special event and an amazing event. I will just put a plug in here that has nothing to do with it, that those of you who are still of childbearing ages, I would highly recommend to you for at least one of your children to not find out what sex you will have. And all the older women will now say, amen, correct? Uh, we did not know with any of our children we could have known. And I've got to tell you, young women, there is nothing like that moment of learning what you have just had. Nothing like it. And I'm going to tell you about one of those moments this morning, but I've got to back up just a little bit. A month before our daughter Katie was born, my brother-in-law, Rick, died very unexpectedly of an apparent heart attack. Um, Jeff and, and his father, George, my husband Jeff, and Rick all worked at Kieser's Bookstore. Uh, my my husband's grandfather began a bookstore. At the time that it closed in 1999, it was the oldest independent bookstore, bookseller in Omaha. 
Anyway, they went to pick up Rick one morning for work uh, and found that he, he had died. And uh, a very, very um, just catastrophic and, and surprising event. And uh, this was a month before, so I'm eight months pregnant with Katie when this happens. I also should tell you that a number of years before that, and I meant to find out whether it was 1981 or 1982, I think it was 1982, my sister-in-law, who I ever knew, never knew at the age of 28, took her own life. So now my in-laws, who started with three children, had lost two of their three children. Um, and I was very pregnant with Katie when Rick died. So we get around to uh, about the time Katie's ready to be born. I had had with our first uh, child, with Josh, a C-section, a cephalopelvic dysproportion. I'd asked the doctor the next day, could I ever have a baby vaginally? And his answer was, you never know, different baby, different pregnancy, but I don't think so. So we got toward the end of the pregnancy, and I went in for that last appointment, and, um, and Katie had not dropped. And, and he tried to find Katie's head. And I said, you know, you can stop any time now. I really think that some maniacal, misogynist man created those stirrups. Did he not? It's like, who, what sort of contraption? Who even comes up with that, you know? So it must have been like Haman. I don't know. But, <laughs> um, and so he said, you know, I think we need to schedule a C-section, which I'd been expecting because I carried all my babies right about up here. You know, they just never even dropped. Uh, so, so, um, we, uh, so we were scheduling a C-section. I'd already thought about this. And I wanted my baby born on September 15th, and I had good reasons for it. First of all, it was a Friday. And my husband and owned a bookstore with his father, and they were the only two there. And there were only so many days he was going to get off. And I was pretty sure his father was going to let him off the day of the birth. I was pretty sure he would get that day off. Although George would drop his wife, honestly, dropped his wife off at the hospital on the way to the bookstore, said, have a nice baby, and went to work. Am, am I telling the truth? The only birth that he was there for was Jeff's, and it was because he was born on a Sunday. And the bookstore was closed. So anyway, I'm sorry, George. God bless you. I loved you so much. And this is on the internet. Okay, my mother-in-law won't listen to it, though. Um, <laughs> she, doesn't have a, she doesn't have internet. Um, so, uh, so I wanted it. Friday the 15th was the perfect day. It made perfect sense because Jeff would get Friday off. Saturday, the bookstore was downtown. They weren't busy. George could handle it on his own. And Sunday, it was closed. He'd get three days off. And at this point, I was thinking, that would be wonderful to have those three days and have Jeff with me. And, and so I was all in favor of that. So, I, so the doctor says, well, we need to schedule a C-section. I said, please, please, Dr. Seamers, could we have the baby on Friday the 15th? And he said, well, I'm scheduled for surgery, but I can change that. Let me see what I can do. And he leaves the room, and he comes back, and he says, you know, I, I could have changed my surgery, but there's not an operating room available and I can't you know, do it later than this time when I need to be in the office, so uh, we're going to have to do it Monday the 18th. And I was heartbroken. So I'm driving home, and this, honestly, I, this is what I said out loud to God. I am not kidding you. I've told this story enough times that this is honestly what I said to God. You made the earth, you made the universe in six days. This one could not have been too hard for you. I mean, find an operating room? That's like a minor thing. Why couldn't you have gotten me an operating room? And I heard the Spirit of God say in my heart, Amy, just wait. 
So we get to the 15th, and the night of the 15th, early on the 16th, I went, I'm in labor. <laughs> and I'd gone into labor. September 16th is my mother-in-law's birthday. And uh, pretty soon we called the doctor. We realized, yeah, this is time. Go to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, I turned to Jeff, and I said, the sweetest thing God could do for your mother right now is give her a little girl on her birthday. Remember, I didn't know what we were having. Um, because Betty had had a granddaughter, and, and her older grandchildren are a good deal older than my children. And then she'd had all these grandsons, and she'd lost her only daughter. And she really, really, want, she made no bones about it. I want a little girl. I want a little girl. I never said that out loud. With Katie, I really, really did want a little girl. But uh, and I've already told you about my blonde-haired, blue-eyed, left-handed little girl with a uh, wonderful personality. So... We get to the hospital, and I go into labor, and the doctor says, you know, you're in labor. You want to try? I said, yeah, let's try. Let's, you know, whatever. whatever. And it was a Saturday. It was a Husker game day. It was the absolute best way for me to have a baby because I was listening to the game. And I'll never forget, we're playing Arizona State. Cluster Johnson has a long touchdown, and I'm going, go, Cluster, go, Cluster, go, Cluster. Uh, and so it was perfect, but my water broke, she didn't drop, and the doctor said it has to be a C-section. So we go into the operating room, and Katie is born, and I hear, it's a girl. And I start saying, no, it's not, is it a girl? No, it can't be a girl. Really, is it a girl? I can't believe it's a girl. And so he takes Katie, you hold her like this, she had this little belly, it was hilarious. Hold her, she was almost 10 pounds. Hold her up like this so I can see her, and says, Amy, we don't know everything, but we do know that this is a girl. <laughs> and so we're singing praises to God, and we're so excited. And the next day, the, the doctor who assisted in the, in the C-section came in and said to me, uh, you need to have more children. And I'm less than 24 hours away of having the second one. I'm like, thank, thank you. Not now. And, and I said, why? And she said, because I've never seen such a strong, positive reaction to the birth of a child. And that must mean you're good parents, and the good ones should have more. What a, what a sweet thing for, for Dr. Anshulin to say to me. So, so here we are. We have our girl. We have our girl on the 16th of September, the best birthday present that my mother-in-law ever received. Now that's a great story, and why am I telling it? I'm not gonna tell you now, I'll tell you in a little bit. First, we're gonna take a look back at, at what's happened in, uh, in the story, because Haman has, has convinced the king to pass this edict, and he's thrown a lot, a, a pur, I pur, wrote purim, I didn't mean to, a pur, uh, and, and cast a lot that would say that 11 months later, the Jews were going to be annihilated. Because one Jew wouldn't bow, Haman's uh, answer to that was kill them all. Uh, and this edict is passed, and Mordecai is, is in mourning over this law and goes to Esther and essentially confronts her and says, you need to go to the king, you need to beg and plead for our lives. And she says, not me, buddy, I'm not doing that. I'm not, I don't want to get killed myself. And he says to her, you know what, make no bones about it. If you don't do it, you'll perish. You may die. If you, if you go to the king, but you'll definitely die if you don't. And, and his confrontation, and I think particularly when he says, and who knows, but that you were brought to such a royal position for such a time as this, changes her mind, 
And she decides she will go to the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. And she identifies with her people in that moment. And so she goes to the king and he holds out his scepter. And so the threat of her immediate death is at least abated for now. And she invites him to a banquet at which they eat and they drink. And he says, tell me what you want. I'll give you whatever you want, up to half the kingdom which is what he said initially in the, in the throne room as well. And all she asks for is for him to come back and Haman to come back to a second banquet. This moment is not the turning point of the story. It's not the pivot point. In fact, things continue to get worse from there, particularly for Mordecai, for whom a 75-foot-high gallows, a structure was built that he was to be impaled upon. So we're left with something of a cliffhanger uh, again in this story where Esther has been accepted by the king and so therefore she will not die and maybe, just maybe, because she has 11 months to accomplish it, she can, um, she can save the Jews. But Mordecai is a different story. There's a gallows waiting for him immediately. And is she going to be able to do anything in time to save him? Here's the deal. The fate of the Jews, uh, including Mordecai, was not in Esther's hands. The fate of the Jews was not in Xerxes' hands, and it certainly wasn't in Haman's hands. In fact, they had nothing to do with it. The turning point, the pivot point of this story has nothing to do with the actions of Esther or Mordecai or Haman or Xerxes. The story turns on a seemingly innocuous case of insomnia. The king has a sleepless night. Oops, nope, didn't want to do that. Go back. That night the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought to him and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendants answered. The king said, who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. When Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, who is there the king would rather honor than me? So the king answered, or so he answered the king, for the man the king delights to honor, have them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on its head. Let the, let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes, princes. Then let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Go at once, the king commanded Haman. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city, streets proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. That is a great story. 
this, this reads like a dark comedy. It has all of the makings of a dark comedy. It has irony. The king is planning to honor Mordecai just as Haman is planning to execute him. It has comic timing. Haman just happens to be out in the outer court at the very right time, or from Haman's point of view possibly the very wrong time, uh, to, to tell the king what he should do. No doubt he got to the throne room early so he could get Mordecai's uh, death warrant issued as quickly as possible. There's misunderstanding. Who is there the king would rather honor than me? In his pride, uh, Haman misunderstands what the king is saying because he can't imagine a person that the king would want to honor more than himself. It reads very much like a Shakespearean comedy, doesn't it? I remember sitting in the uh, coffee shop in college reading Taming of the Shrew and laughing out loud. And I think that's what we're supposed to do at this point in the story too. This story has coincidence on top of coincidence. The king just happens to have a sleepless night. What kept him awake? Indigestion? Coffee? Years ago, I was at a meeting at Avery Church, actually, and uh, came home, and, and Jeff and I were in bed, and I'm just, and then we said this, and then somebody did this, and then da 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 da, da. and Jeff said, Amy, did you have coffee tonight? <laughs> I said, uh-huh, yeah. That was the night I learned that I can't drink coffee at night. But it doesn't say any of that. It says nothing. The king was awake for no reason at all. Seemingly, anyway. Uh, we have, um, so it's a, it's a God thing that the king was awake. We have a, a uh, choice of activity here. The king just happens to decide to have his annals read to him. Think about this. He could have done anything at this point. He was king of Persia. He could have said, create me a banquet. Bring me some wine. Uh, why didn't he pick that one? I mean, that would be fitting for, for King Xerxes. He could have had dancing girls. He could have had a little after midnight delight with one of the members of the harem. You know, but he doesn't choose any of that. He says, read to me about me. I want to hear about me, which reminds me of the joke that this person is talking to someone else about himself, and he says, well, enough about me. What about you? What do you think about me? <laughs> I, I think that, that was about King Xerxes. So it's a God thing that, uh, that Xerxes decides to have his annals read about him. And it's a God thing that the guy that read it to him just happened to pick up the annals at the very point where what Mordecai has done on behalf of, of the king in preventing an assassination plot is read. That very part. It's a God thing. Uh, and then Haman just happens to appear in the outer court at the very time that the king is trying to do what he, trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. And heaven knows he can't make a decision on his own. Somebody else has to tell him what to do. And Haman happens to be there. It's a God thing. In this story where God's name is never mentioned, we have a lot of unexplained coincidences but they aren't really coincidences at all, are they? They're what my family calls God incidences, like operating rooms being unavailable. 
Think about Mordecai for a minute and his disappointment. Uh, the disappointment he must have felt when he was not honored for saving the king's life. And the kings, kings were very, ancient kings were very fastidious about making sure that those who were good to them were honored because it was dangerous for them. Uh, in fact, Xerxes was assassinated in his own bed um, by his own men. Uh, surely he must have been disappointed. Mordecai must have been disappointed about not being honored for saving the king's life. But he kept on serving the king. You know, we've, we've said some negative things about Mordecai and his character, but this shows a great deal of integrity to, uh, to apparently not grouse or not refuse to serve the king for his refusal to honor Mordecai. Consider this, however. Had Mordecai been honored immediately, it would not have led to the story we just read. There would not have been an opportunity for his deferred reward to come at just the right time to be an important link in the deliverance of the Jews from the threat of suicide, or the, the, from the threat of, of genocide. <clears throat> this is the pivot point of the story. The king's sleepless night. You know, I think a lot of times we make our plans because obviously we know what is right. And we expect God to bless those plans. Look, this is what you need to do, God. So just go ahead and rubber stamp this one because I know what I'm supposed to do. Like September 15th for a birthday. And we can sometimes get angry at God for not answering our prayers or at least not answering them the way we want. This is kind of a bugaboo of mine when people say God didn't answer my prayers. Yes, he did. He said no. If your child comes to you and says, may I have a cookie, and you say no, and then they say, you didn't answer my request, are you going to say, oh, yeah, I didn't? No, I answered you, sweetie. I said no. It's a perfectly good answer. But we don't feel that way when we're in the middle of something that we think we know what God should do. And we become depressed when we suffer disappointment or setback. But God may have a different plan. God may have a better plan. He may want to bless a grieving grandmother with the best birthday present she ever got. And he did. We never know what God is up to when we think he's not paying attention. But believe me, he is paying attention. And he knows what he's doing. I love reading this story and picturing Haman, you know, strutting in and, well, who would he want to honor other than me? And then hearing, I do what? And having to walk in front of that horse. Can't you just see him going, dang. <laughs> Why did I ever open my mouth? I've thought that a time or two myself. Haman had everything he wanted. He had wealth, he had power, he had honor, he had fame. And for Haman, no, there was no other honor left him but to partake in the king's own power, prestige, and stature. And so what he wanted was to be like the king, uh, to experience what the king experiences and be treated like the king, be king for a day, as it were. And in fact, uh, there's some evidence that in ancient uh, cultures, the king's robe and anything the king had worn or sat on or slept in, the throne, the bed, all had magical powers. 
And so Haman very likely wanted some of that for himself, some of that sort of king-like magical powers. Um, and instead he finds this peripety, this reversal of fortune. Instead of going from zero to 60, he goes from 60 to zero immediately. One minute he's thinking, who would the king rather honor than me? And the next he's leading his mortal enemy through the streets saying, this is what the king does for those who delight to honor him. Uh, it is a foreshadowing of his ultimate downfall that will come uh, in the next chapter. It is, in fact, the definition of a bad day. I, I have a feeling that in ancient Persia there was a version of a story we often read to our children called Haman and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day. I mean, I'm sure that, that he just thought, how could it get any worse than this? But it, it does, in fact, get worse than this. After the parade, Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you can't stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. She's a very encouraging wife. While they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. So Mordecai goes back to work. It's like he wasn't even affected by all this. And Haman goes home covered in shame, and his wife and his friends go, why didn't you tell us he was Jewish? Oh, Evay, you're in trouble now, because they knew that Haman could not stand before Mordecai, because no one can stand before God, uh, and God is in control. Haman will fall. So this, the pivot point of the story is this seemingly insignificant event. It is not the climax of the story. The climax of the story comes in the next chapter, where, where uh, Esther turns, when, when Xerxes says, who is this evil person? And Esther says, this vile Haman is the climax of the story. If, if that were the turning point, when Haman is outed as the one who wants to kill the Jews, then Esther would get credit for the deliverance of the Jews from genocide. But human action had nothing to do with the events in this chapter. It had, human action as a whole plays a part in this story. But the crucial thing, the crucial event that put everything in motion to save the Jews was a night of insomnia. The king couldn't sleep. And Esther and Mordecai and Haman and Xerxes had nothing to do with that. In fact, the Greek version uh, of, of the Old Testament makes it even more explicit. It says the king took, or the God took sleep from the king that night. So what does this tell us then? And what does it tell us about God? The first thing it tells us is that no one in the story, not even the king himself, is in control of what is about to happen. God is in control of this peripety, of this turn of events. In fact, uh, that's what the Greek translation tells us, that, the, that God, the Lord God took sleep from the king. The second thing that it tells us is that God was still in the business of redeeming his people. 
his promises to Abraham still stood. Remember, I told you that the question that these exiled Jews would have been asking is, are we still children of the covenant? Does God's covenant still apply to us in exile in Susa? And God's emphatic answer to that is, yes, it does. God remained faithful to his covenant, even toward these sometimes faithless Jews in exile. And because God's rule in human history is not based on circumstance, but rather it is based on his word, we can trust that he is still at work and he is still in control no matter what the circumstances we face. The third thing that this tells us about God is that God is more than just a God of miracles. See, the gods of, of ancient Persia and of all ancient uh, religions were very uh, capricious and they were very changing and they could change their minds and they could change their actions and you never knew which one you had to appease and you never knew how to make them happy and you could never figure out what you were supposed to do to get them off your backs. Uh, and, and our God is not like that. He does not change and his promises are good forever. I, I've got to quote Karen Job's one more time. God providentially directs the flow of human history through the ordinary lives of individuals to fulfill the promises of his covenant. What a great God we serve. And she says tongue-in-cheek, I want to make sure you understand, any deity worth his salt can do a miracle now and then. Our God is so great, so powerful, that he can work without miracles through the ordinary events of billions of human lives through millennia of time to accomplish his eternal purposes and ancient promises. What a great God we serve indeed. And ladies, he is still at work through ordinary people and ordinary events to fulfill his covenant and his purposes. He's involved in the, the happy events as well as the sad ones. Amen? So I want you to notice as we move on to chapter 7 how quickly this story moves towards Haman's destruction. It starts out, so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were drinking wine, I just have to say, the man needs to go to AA. <laughs> hello, my name is Xerxes, or hello, my name is Ahasuerus. I mean, really, it's all over, uh, this story. And as they were drinking wine on that second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, if you have found favor, if I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would, distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? Esther said, the adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the queen had, king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. 
Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A gallows 75 feet high stands by Haman's house. He had made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, Hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. Haman thought he was showing up for a banquet that the queen wanted him to be at because she wanted to honor him. And by the end of the chapter, just 10 verses later, he's hanged on the gallows. Esther, we need to understand, is, has a, a dangerous and delicate task ahead of her. In fact, let me explain to you how dangerous this was. There was a father of five sons who petitioned Xerxes, the same Xerxes, for his eldest son to be allowed to be relieved from military service. You can keep the other four, just let me have the one, the eldest, to be at home with me. And Xerxes granted his request. He relieved his son from military service by killing him, cutting him in half, and having his army march through the middle of his body. It's dangerous what Esther was about to ask. Uh, and you never knew how Xerxes would respond. Think about this. She has to accuse Haman of crimes against humanity while not incriminating the king for the same crime because who was in charge of that edict being passed? Who gave his approval? Xerxes. It had Xerxes' seal on it and it had his full approval. She also had to accuse Haman, the king's closest friend, maybe his only friend, and his closest advisor. And she had no guarantee that the king would choose to side with her rather than with Haman. In fact, he hadn't called her for 30 days. And, um, and he, he, he didn't call for her when he couldn't sleep. He asked to be read the, the annals of his reign. So Esther finally and very skillfully gives her reply to the king's question that he is now, or the king's statement, to give, her, give him her request and her petition. He's done that three times. And in her skillful reply, she structures her answer exactly like his question. He says, here, she says, here is my petition. Grant me my life. Here is my request. Spare my people. Esther is fully identifying herself as a Jew, although she doesn't name her people yet. She fully identifies herself with her people. Their life is her life. Their destiny is her destiny. She will either live with them or she will die with them. And she quotes Haman's edict in this uh, without mentioning his name or the edict in specifics she says that, um, well, I'm not going to go back to it, that they have been scheduled for annihilation. She uses the same terms that they were in the edict. Uh, she fails to mention who it is that she is accusing, just as Haman failed to mention which people it was that he was planning to annihilate. But she also refuses to implicate the king in this. So the king is angry beyond angry. And in fact, it is lost in translation, uh, this, this furious, ang angry answer where he says, who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? In the Hebrew, it is a very staccato, it sounds almost like machine gun fire. 
that he's, he's, just, he's just releasing his fury and asking, who is this that would do such a thing? Um, and and uh, Esther's answer is, is very much the same. Esther's accusation of Haman is also very staccato, very sharp, and very emotional. In fact, a more literal translation would be, a man hateful and hostile, this wicked Haman is the man. Now, the king has a quandary because he's angry for sure. Uh, he's been betrayed, he's been misled, but he allowed himself to be. And he's on the horns of a dilemma. How can he punish Haman for an edict that he himself sealed? Uh, and if he admits to his own role in this, hey, dudes, shouldn't have done it, he'll lose face with his subjects. He can't revoke it, it's irrevocable law, and he can't implicate Haman without implicating himself. So he leaves the room. I don't think he's counting to 10. I think he's trying to figure out, what do I do now? And Haman solves that for him by his further folly. There was a harem law that said a man could not be alone with any member of the harem, ever. And so when Xerxes left the room, by, by harem protocol, Haman should have left the room. But he also knew that Esther was his only hope. He knew the king had already decided his fate, and Esther was his only hope. So he stays to beg for his life as she's lying there on her couch. Um, and when Xerxes returns, he finds Haman falling on the couch. The, the ancient rabbis thought that Gabriel gave him a good shove, pushed him over onto, onto Esther. And it solves the dilemma for the king, because, because just being alone with her actually was punishable with death. It's a great place to live. Um, and so certainly if he's falling on top of her, he deserves to die. Now I, I think that both Xerxes and Hester knew that Haman wasn't trying, well I'll just rape the king, queen as long as I'm here and I'm scheduled to die anyway. I think they both knew that she, he, he wasn't trying to rape Esther. It just gave the king a convenient charge to bring against Haman and to execute him. And in fact, you know, he, he didn't even need that much of a charge. And Horbona's words in here are really interesting because he brings up, because, because okay, he's being executed. They cover his face. They know he's being executed. And, and Harbona says, hey, there's already a gallows by Haman's house. He made it for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. In the Hebrew, Horbona is kind of implicating Haman here and saying, that maybe Haman was a sympathizer with those who tried to assassinate the king. Um, and we don't know for sure if he was or he wasn't, but the Greek translation of this story tells us that Haman was uh, executed for treason, that that was the charge that was brought against him. Uh, I told you in the, in, the store, in the lesson this week that a gallows isn't like a noose like we think of it. They would kill the person, usually behead the person, uh, but other ways too, and then impale the body, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry, impale the body on the gallows to hang that person up as an example to everyone else and to bring shame uh, on that person and on his family. And so that's what happened uh, to Mordecai. Uh, and there is, there is irony in this story because Haman, Haman sought vengeance uh, because a Jew would not bow to him. And here we find him bowing before a Jew, a woman even, in Esther. How great was his fall from second in command to his death in a heartbeat.
Haman is pleading with Esther for his life. And he had scheduled her to die. There is an unresolved issue here, though. And that is, has the king granted the request? No. No, we don't know what's going to happen to the Jews yet. And it's irrevocable law. Uh, Haman's met his deserved end. And Mordecai is safe from the gallows. But as for the edict, we don't know yet. Now, despite the king's assurances uh, that he'd grant her request, it's irrevocable law. Uh, And this might be part of why he was so upset. He realizes it's not that easy uh, to do. But we should have some understanding because of who God is, how it's going to turn out. There are several themes in this uh, story that I'd like to touch on just real quickly. The first one is divine justice. Because human evil always sets itself up against God because God is love and God is justice and God is goodness. And so human evil always uh, is is, uh, the enemy of God's goodness. And in order to redeem his people, God necessarily had to destroy the evil people who threatened to destroy his people. In order to continue within his covenant, in order to redeem his people, he had to have a people to redeem. And so Haman deserved what Haman got. And the Amalekites deserved what they got because God had to exhibit divine justice on them. In one sense, Haman's end, Haman's destruction, was caused by his own evil pride. And in another sense, it was divine justice upon him. Uh, A second theme in this part of the story is identification with a people. In this part of the story, life and death are determined by who each person identifies themselves with. Haman, as a descendant of Agag, as an Amalekite, comes to destruction because he is identified with the, as an enemy of God, as a member of the enemies of God. And Esther, as a child of the covenant, shares her destiny with, his peop- with her people. Although the end of the story is still in doubt at this point, even Haman's wife could see the handwriting on the wall. Our identity is in Christ. God's promises to Israel are fulfilled and completed in Christ. Therefore, we know we will ultimately be delivered from death and granted eternal life. Jesus himself said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. In fact, it's the ultimate peripety. We should have been given death. We deserve death. I have a friend who says we're all dirty, rotten sinners deserving hell. And yet, um, God has given us life. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just a little. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I heard a pastor once say that the greatest words in all of the Bible are, but God. 
It all changes. It's the ultimate peripety that we who deserved death were instead, because of Jesus' death on the cross and the empty tomb, have been given life, not just now, but eternal life. All happening from seemingly ordinary events. A birth of a baby, it happens every day. Crucifixion happened all the time. An empty tomb was a little unusual, but uh, <laughs> resurrection didn't happen every day. But crucifixion happened all the time in Roman-controlled Palestine. Ordinary events that God orchestrated to give to us the ultimate role reversal. Our destiny uh, is because of the cross of Christ and his resurrection. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. We have been given the ultimate peripety. And in our darkest days and in our greatest trials, we can know this truth and believe this truth that we will one day live and reign with Christ. And God's word tells us that on that day, every bad thing, every evil thing of this world will be reversed. I read this passage to my grandmother shortly before she died, so it's very personal to me. And it's John writing in Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Sea in the Bible stands for chaos. There was no longer any chaos. There was no longer anything wrong with the world. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Oh, how I long for that day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that this world stinks. And yet, but God, you have given us life in exchange for death. And that life will be eternal and perfect in your presence. We thank you and praise you for that ultimate peripety you have granted to us. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, ladies. See you next week.